Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Andrea Petu. We are here in the CEU podcast studio. Uh, this is the podcast of the subcommittee of the history of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. And I have the honor to have Professor Thomas Weber with me, who is a professor of history and international affairs at the University of Aberdeen. And uh, he published several uh, award-winning uh, books, including the Luch Ghetto album in 2004, which called the, uh, got the Golden Light Award in the category of Best Edited Historical Books. And um, several other awards uh, was given to this uh, publication. And also he received in 2010 uh, the Arthur Gottseid Book Award of the New York Military Affairs Symposium for the best book on military history for his third book, Hitler's First War. And the reason why we are talking today uh, is um, his new book, Becoming Hitler, the story of how Hitler became a Nazi, uh, which is a book published by Basic Books and by Oxford University Press. And uh, I have the honor of reading this book, and this is a extremely easy uh, reading and full of interesting insights and uh, questioning lots of previous Mises. Uh, we always start this um, podcast with the question that, what was your aha moment? What was the surprise moment? Because uh, working on the life story of Hitler is, uh, uh, for the first sight, doesn't look extremely exciting because there's a whole library with the uh, biographies of Hitler. So uh, what was your surprise moment. Thank you so much for having me. There were actually a lot of surprise moments. The um, When I write, I obviously have set myself questions. I have certain hypotheses, but I'm not out there to just test a hypothesis um, or to just prove a hypothesis, certainly to, to test it. And as a result of that, there are always so many moments where I'm in an archive or where I talk to someone and they suddenly say something or I suddenly find something that really changes uh, my hypothesis. And those moments are really exciting. One of those moments happened uh, right at the end of uh, writing researching this book. In fact, I had already written the first draft when I came across a reference that there were these private papers in South Africa of the guy who was supposed to be the ever, first ever Hitler biographer, a very short uh, Hitler biography written in 1923, which everyone mentions, but people don't really make a lot of that. And uh, I was really surprised to see this reference. And uh, so I decided I would uh, just fly to South Africa for um, a couple of days since I couldn't go for longer. And I went through these private papers not knowing what to expect. And then suddenly I realized this first Hitler biography wasn't a Hitler biography at all. It was, in fact, an autobiography. I realized that here was evidence in front of me that showed that Hitler himself had written this very short first Hitler biography in order to sell himself to pitch himself, to create the expectation of a new kind of political leader. And because he thought it would be better if someone else makes the case, rather than that he says, I'm the Messiah, that uh, he would find someone else to to lend his name to it. And uh, to suddenly realize, and being some in, in Johannesburg, that, wow, there is a book by Hitler we don't know about, we're certainly a big 
aha moment. And it also really then kind of helped me to solidify my case I was trying to make, how Hitler wasn't just the um, the supporter of other people at that time, the guy who was the drummer who didn't really know what he wanted to do, but that he was or he already saw himself as a future leader who in a very clever way understood how political processes worked and how he managed to create the expectation of a new kind of political leader who only could be someone like him. When you were a graduate student, you worked together with Ian Kershaw. Uh, you helped him to clear up the biography. So uh, what kind of uh, findings and concepts you had when you thought that you have to write your own version of uh, the life history of Hitler? Because this is the second volume you are uh, writing about Hitler. And I hope that, you know, there are more volumes to come. Uh, so why do you think that uh, there is a void in the uh, historiography? And why do you think your questions are important to ask here and now today? It was a great honor and fun to to work in a very minor role on Ian Kershaw's um, Hitler biography. Um, and I certainly learned so much from uh, f- from the book. I'm not sure whether at that time I, I realized that I would work on Hitler myself uh, one day. It was not that I was working on this and said, well, I should also do something or I can do this better or whatever. I was just full, uh, full of awe for uh, his biographies. But maybe the, the seed was planted in the sand that this was my first really deep, sustained involvement with Hitler. Obviously, I'd always been engaging with him. I mean, how could you not if you're a historian or how could you not if you grew up in 1970s and 1980s Germany to, um, but still, I didn't really think that I would ever write a book on Hitler myself. Even at that time when I was working, um, when I helped in a very minor role in Kershaw, I didn't think I would write something because I thought there's so many great books. What else is there new to say? But then I realized in the mid 2000s, as I was looking for a new project, that We have all these ideas of how Hitler became Hitler, how Hitler first emerged, that somehow just didn't quite add up. Initially, people had for a long time believed the core of the story that Hitler himself was telling. I mean, the obviously people had believed that Hitler was embellishing a story, but they still thought that there was a true core to the story of how Hitler became Hitler. But then there was this book in the 1990s by this German-Austrian historian Brigitte Hamann who demolished that view and really showed that Hitler in his Vienna years was not the man whom we all know. He was not the man who was already radicalized. He was not the anti-Semite whom we all know. And that therefore people then said, well, if it wasn't Vienna, it must have been his first World War years that radicalized him. And that increasingly just somehow didn't seem to make sense to me. And that's how I really first came to work um, on Hitler, where I thought that I just wanted to make sense for myself initially, but these kind of tensions between what people said about how Hitler became Hitler and my own understanding of the First World War. And I thought that I could get around the problem of the fact that there are so few sources on Hitler and the First World War, and that therefore people inevitably had to look at Hitler's own words, that if I, I thought if I look at the, the men of his regiment as a kind of group biography, if you see, I could think of him as a kind of missing piece in a jigsaw puzzle, but if I know what the pieces around look like, I probably can say something new. I can um, look at the impact of the First World War, but then to my great surprise, by looking at the people around him, I suddenly found all this new material uh, in archives, which had been hiding in documents, had been hiding in plain sight, but also in in attics in Bavaria, or in private papers in America, and so on. At any rate, so that was my first book, uh, Hitler's first war. I saw my first book on Hitler, Hitler's first war. 
And after that, I felt pretty Hitler out. I felt that uh, never again Hitler. But then, uh, I mean, obviously, I was very happy with the book that I had produced, but it had also been a lot of effort to write it. But then I realized that the even though it was really nice to see and satisfying to see that people generally believed the story that I was telling, that my heart sank a little bit when I realized that even though people then believed that the First World War had made Hitler, that people then moved on to say, okay, well, then it must have been the immediate period after the war. And Hitler then just um, soaks up all the right-wing ideas around him. He's just a typical product of the people around him, this right-wing milieu that Hitler for many years doesn't really matter that much as an individual. And there really my heart sank. And and um, I felt, no, that just doesn't sound right. And... Uh, and I guess also this was at a time when the world around us also started to change, where it started the first unraveling of uh, liberal democracy in various parts of the world. And um, while I'm not sure whether I saw new Hitlers, I, I certainly saw the conditions that uh, weakened uh, liberal democracy, you know, the first age of globalization. And at that point, I really thought, well, I really do think that I should go back to the question and look at how Hitler became Hitler, how this unremarkable uh, soldier from the First World War who returns from the war being still kind of an awkward loner and with someone who had still very much fluctuating political ideas for him anti-Semitism had been that important to the man whom we all know. And that's how I then decided that I would write another book on Hitler and how Hitler became Hitler. You said it would be nice if I write more on Hitler. Uh, the, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm of two minds. Um, on the one hand, I feel the... I don't want to write about Hitler just because I can. Because, I mean, obviously, if you have written a couple of books on Hitler that maybe have been received relatively well, publishers will approach you and want you to write more about Hitler. But I don't like the kind of book which you just write because you can get a contract. I would only want to write more on Hitler if I felt that I had something new to say, or rather that there are unresolved questions that, that matter historically, but also that matter for to understand the world we live in, and that I had the either new sources or new intellectual inspiration that would allow me to uh, to 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 do that. And uh, I'm sure at some point in the future I will return to Hitler. How soon I don't know. Right. So you had basically two intellectual inspirations. One is that you found uh, several unused, undiscovered archives. So this is the archive fever that you hope that you will find the truth. And also the zeitgeist, I would say. So the present moment that you see lots of uh, charismatic leaders emerging in different uh, parts of the world. So I was wondering that you already mentioned the South African adventure, but you might want to share with the listeners uh some of the stories about the ethic and, uh, you know, what kind of archives you have found, which nobody else have found. And uh, also that there is there are lots of material about uh, this period. So what what was your methodology to ask different questions uh, using the same material that mm -hmm. previous historians already used? There are two questions here. I mean, one is, is about finding new material. And the other one is about approaches or have what, what kind of questions I ask. Let's start with the material. I suppose it's a combination of using, of going back to material that exists and maybe just actually look at it again and actually see what people have been missing. Um, 
That, that wouldn't be sufficient, but that's certainly a first step. And it's surprising what you can find. For instance, in my previous book, one of the most important documents that actually shows on how the soldiers in the trenches saw Hitler during the First World War and that really undermines the Nazi story of that Hitler was telling himself, how he was the personification of the unknown German soldier, how he was a typical product how of the regiment, how National Socialism was born in the trenches of the First World War. One of the letters that was undermining this had been a letter that had been digitized, that had been microfilmed um, decades ago uh, that is available in various repositories around the world. But because it was just listed amongst miscellaneous letter to Hitler, no one had really looked at it. And one day when I was really looking for something else in the U.S. National Archives, I just got bored from going through these microfilms all day and wanted to do something else. And I started to look at miscellaneous letters. And I found that evidence. Or for the new book, Again, towards the end of the research, I thought, well, let's look a little bit at these testimonies that former Nazis gave to this to the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich. And um, in part, I just did it because a lot of them had re recently been digitized and I could do it just from my, uh, from my desk at home. And I suddenly realized that there was evidence that Hitler had initially tried to uh, join a different party. From the from, from the Nazi party, so it is sometimes actually not that difficult to find new material if you just maybe look a little bit more diligently. But beyond that, I was really trying to um, suppose I was trying to find private papers of people, and of course through the digitization of the world, or at least of the kind of stuff that we deal with, it's of course much easier also to find material. You can, if you understand Google Books as the kind of matter index of almost any book that has ever been found, if you then look for certain obscure figures, you may realize that there is some, in some footnote from some book from 1977, a reference to the private papers of that person in some university archive, and you can then go there. Uh, so in that sense, it's also possible to find new material through that. Um, I've also asked newspapers to help to, uh, to write articles on my research and ask people to come forward. So it's really a combination of that. So really trying both being a kind of detective and to try to go to people where people hadn't gone, to uh, to ask families or descendants of people who are involved. There was a lot of that. And some of the, the work is also a little bit tedious, but ultimately still pays off. For instance, there's this view that there were these uh, militias in Munich during the revolutionary period, which, interesting, Hitler did not join, who are still being supposed to be part of this milieu from which Hitler just soaked up ideas. They're supposed to be deeply anti-Semitic and all that. But what I then did, actually together with a student, to, an accredited student of mine, is uh, we went through all the, uh, mostly he mostly went through the muster rolls of the, all these um, units and uh, to identify Jewish members. And we realized that the supposedly right-wing anti-Semitic uh, militias had a disproportionately high uh, proportion of Jewish members. So it's also that kind of work. So it's not just like golden finds where within, I mean, it's not just the equivalent of the South African find where you immediately see something in front of you, but it's also a lot of tedious work that really pays off. But let's move on to the second part of your question about the kind of new inspiration. What I've been trying to do in researching this book and writing this book is not just to be part of the scholarly community of people who work on Hitler and the Third Reich, 
and I don't mean this in, dis- in any way in disrespect, these are great people who work on this, but I think there's still a, a danger here of just becoming part of a groupthink, of a groupthink in terms of ask the kind of questions. While researching this book, I uh, had a rather extended, I was lucky enough to be able to have a, a three-year extended sabbatical, and which I spent at Harvard to, to research this book. And a lot of people then ask me, I mean, I'm sure Harvard was great, but why would you go to Harvard rather than why wouldn't you go to the Institute for Contemporary History in Munich, where everyone works on the Third Reich? You know, we would have all the documents right there. And it's like, well, that's precisely the point. They're they're great at the Institute, but then I would basically just do what everyone else is doing. I would be asking the same question everyone else is doing. So what I really wanted to do was to be uh, surrounded by a community of smart and intelligent people who might work on questions of politization in totally different contexts, either in the present, in the past, in European and non-European contexts, or not even politicization at all. So to be really curious to go widely to talks in order to uh, then apply the, uh, the kind of questions people were asking there the question also asked in other disciplines to, to my own research. And this is basically how my kind of inspiration works. Thank you. This is really important. And that leads us to the question of what is the role of historian? So in a sense that uh, there is this discussion about the social relevance, and you have already mentioned that you don't want to be a part of this uh, uh, small uh, group of historians who are intimately working on the history of the uh, Third Reich. So you also write lots of open ads so, uh, about, this, uh, about this topic. So I wonder what is your opinion about the uh, present and um, duty of historian as a public intellectual and also about the the other inspiration, uh, which is uh, of our time, namely that there are these uh, new charismatic leaders who are arising and we see lots of open ads which are actually making this one-to-one historical analogy to the uh, post-First World War period and the Weimar Germany and today. So basically my question is about your intellectual credo as a historian, your position uh, as a public historian, writing lots of open ads about these issues, and uh, what do you think about the uh, your research topic, which uh, suddenly became such a topic when everybody has an opinion on? The last question is, of course, a double-edged uh, sword. It's the for a long time when particularly, I mean, I find generally when I am talking to people in buses, on planes, or on holidays, and people ask, what, what are you working on? If you tell them what you work on, people are generally really interested. At a conference, I sometimes find that if you tell people that you work on Hitler, that they were kind of rolling their eyes. And um, suddenly this changed a few years ago for obvious political uh, contacts. And uh, it's a double-edged sword. It's obviously great that people suddenly have an interest in what you do. Uh, At the same time, obviously I would prefer to live in a world in which uh, my research would maybe uh, be less topical. But let's go back to, to, to step one or to the original question. I mean, what is the role of a historian? I mean, the I don't think that every historian necessarily has got to play the social role. If a historian only wants to do history for art's sake, that's absolutely fine. But I, I also do think that at least collectively, or at least some of us, have got the obligation, maybe also the ethical obligation, the moral obligation, to use our insights to understand the world we live in. Of course, there's a danger. There's a danger of prostituting yourself. There is a danger to make facile comparisons. There is 
He, um, is, 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 so there are a lot of pitfalls, and I think there are also a lot of examples where, as you've already alluded to, those comp- kind of comparison analogies maybe do not work uh, terribly well. And yet, I do think that it's important that we as historians do offer um, a view. I also do think that what the history of the last not just the last few years, but maybe the last 20 years have shown, is that it's important to take a longer view. I mean, there was this view, particularly before, uh, prior to 2008, that w- that somehow suggested that, well, we don't really look at the past. We really just, economic or health can just be understood as a kind of mathematical science. Everything you could, you could calculate everything, and clearly we could not. And clearly, if we take a longer historical view, we see that what looks like a steady development is unlikely really to be, if you look at the long curve, really to be a study uh, development. And uh, so so in that sense, I think that it is extremely important that we offer our insights. I also do think that everything is history. But there are often these, the, you know, in undergraduate uh, seminar, they just discussion, can we learn from history? And uh, I also find this discussion a little bit pointless because in a way, everything is history. Everything is past experience. So while obviously history cannot possibly repeat itself in one-to-one fashion, history is still nevertheless the only inspiration we have to understand the future. The only uh, weapon we have or the only analytical tool we have to to make any sense of uh, future patterns of behavior necessarily has got to be based on past experience, whether it's five minutes old or 50 years old or five years old or 500 years old. So in that sense, um, as long as we're careful with these analogies, I think they're extremely useful and we have an obligation to offer uh, our opinions. But to come to the specifics, both, I guess, of my, my book as well as as a recent crisis um, in America, in Hungary, in Turkey, and as well as elsewhere, I still do think that there is a danger of facile uh, comparisons. During the last American presidential campaign, I received a lot of interview requests basically saying, well, is Trump Hitler? Is fascism happening in America now? And and there, basically, the answer is obviously no. Trump is not Hitler. And there's also a danger asking the wrong kind of uh, questions, because then when people say, if you think, conclude that Trump is not Hitler, the danger is, well, then everything is fine. But no, not everything is fine, because there's a problem with Trump because of Trump. There's also the crying wolf danger that if you cry wolf too often, when the wolves really come, no one listens anymore. But having said that, I think what we can see here in the research that I have done is how seemingly stable societies, how globalized worlds, how liberal worlds can disintegrate. And I think what's more useful here is less to look just at the personality of Hitler, but rather to see how the fabric of liberal democracy is undermined, how the legitimacy of globalism and globalization is undermined. And there, I think, uh, the parallels suddenly start to look far more eerie or uh, dangerous. What I often say to people is, don't just look at 1920s, 1930s. In many ways, what we have uh, experienced in parts, parts of Europe and in, parts of, uh, and, and in the United States is maybe less 
uh, Europe in the 1920s maybe, or 1930s. Maybe that's that's what's happening in Turkey, but not necessarily what's happening in Europe. But what we're expecting, experiencing in Europe is maybe more akin to the crisis of globalization and globalism and liberal democracy in the late 19th century in the post-1873 world. In 1873, the Viennese Stock Exchange collapsed, which um, created a long crisis of capitalism, of globalization, and so on, where there are obvious parallels with the post-2008 crisis, where we see the emergence of the first national socialist parties, not just in Germany, but actually elsewhere initially, where we see the undermining of the idea of globalism and globalization, where we see the emergence of collectivism um, and as we also know, is um, the 1920s and 1930s obviously followed the 1890s. Of course, not in the same fashion everywhere. So we do know that that crisis can be averted if the right things are done, as were as, as happened in certain countries in the interwar period. But they can also go horribly wrong if the wrong decisions are taken. So my argument would be that the or maybe the lesson here really is that what we can learn both from the late 1920s, but also from the world of Munich after the First World War when Hitler first emerged, is that we really have got to to repair liberal democracy, the fabrics of democracy, of uh, when it's still possible. Because also the problem is that you often only know in hindsight with populists with what kind of populist you end up with. Their language is surprisingly similar. But the what lurks behind the similar language employed by populists can be very different. And it ranges from the kind of people who ultimately are still committed to a norms-based system and who use the weapons of, of populism to get a competitive advantage. But the kind of populists who really ultimately turned into dictators use the same kind of language. And the problem is that people of very different kind of uh, political persuasions can project their hopes and expectations into these populists, both past and present. And they might then think that a populist of today, they, they surely will not undermine really liberal democracy. What they're really doing is just this and that. What others think something very different. But that also frees up these new populists to do behind the smokescreen of this very heterogeneous support what they really want to do, what they really want to achieve. And there the danger is that we might not be able to tell the really bad apples apart from the ones that are maybe just slightly bad apples until it's far too late. You mentioned that you really don't want to do another book on Hitler. So there is this Hitler fatigue. So what is the next project? So what do you think that in this very interesting, timely moment of history, what will you be working on? So what do you think? What are those questions which haven't been asked? Because uh, this is uh, the characteristic of your scholarship that you are asking those questions which uh, haven't been asked. So what are those questions? Obviously, I don't want to be hyperbolic and say that no one ever asked the questions I'm asking. But the I also want to say, I didn't quite say I'm not, I'm not touching Hitler again. I'm just want to say I don't want to be just the Hitler guy who writes his way through through Hitler's life. In um, in fact, actually, I'm in the final stages of um, trying to finish a book that I had kind of 
written in parallel to the Tutu becoming Hitler, but then had to put aside, which is a kind of book on the First World War against the grain, which tries to map out all the phenomena that normally tends to be written out of the story or tend to be treated as curiosities that are exceptions to the rule because they don't fit the narrative. Examples include... For instance, the Christmas truces of 1915 to 1917, which according to the kind of the narrative of the First World War in the 20th century shouldn't have happened because they're supposed to have been brutalization, they're supposed to have been radicalization, they're supposed to have been created a world that leads to the sec- straight to the Second World War. And yet, once we map out all these exceptions, we realize that they're so numerous that they're no longer can't be just exceptions. Or I look at another really fascinating chapter uh, has been the contacts between Jews and, uh, and and Germans in Palestine during the First World War. Both grassroots interactions between the 3,000 German soldiers deployed in Palestine and Jews, but also the role played by German officers and diplomats who were there at the time, who were trying to stop Armenian-style genocide of the Jews. And... There's about 10 chapters of this kind, and they just raise so many fascinating questions about the continuity in European and and world history and about the role the First World War played in the 20th century. I mean, it's often described as the seminal catastrophe of the 20th century, the catastrophe that opened the floodgate for everything that followed. But I think it was only one of five seminal catastrophes where it was probably the least important of um, of them. And uh, in fact, I think there are very important lines of continuity that run from uh, the 19th century via the trenches of the First World War to the second half of the 20th century. If we look, for instance, at questions of European integration and so on, they're often being presented as something that was only possible after the utter destruction of the Second World War. But here we see ideas that were around the 19th century, that were around in the trends of the First World War, and that were around in the interwar years. It's um, We also see the kind of, um, if we use the language of uh, Michael Ignatieff's new book, Above Ordinary Virtues, we see the same kind of ordinary virtues survive the First World War that then sustain European integration and the creation of a new world after the Second World War. So that's the, that's what I try to kind of map out um, and in that book, and that's con- also connected with a, it's a kind of double history, both of what happened at the time, but also the First World War on its centenary, what the First World War means today in different European and non-European countries, and how maybe also the memory of the First World War, why, while meant to unite us, is often uh, driving um, us um, apart. So I'm almost done with this book and I guess then I will have got to ask the big question what is next and I'm battling or I'm toying with uh, various ideas. Um, in fact I will at some point surely raise certain questions on Hitler and the emergence of national socialism whether in a book form or not I don't know. I think an obvious question is about the emergence of uh, genocide um, as I already argue in, uh, in in becoming Hitler. I do believe that there is a far straighter line between 
between 1919's Munich and, and, and Auschwitz. And I think in a way that's something that needs to be mapped out better. And I do believe that there is evidence available that would allow me to do this. This is also linked to trying to get to facilitate the move of this huge private collection in Germany to an American research institution. And it's an absolutely enormous collection. If that goes ahead, I would I will certainly use some of that. And then there's some broader questions that I'm, I've been tying with. One relates to the interaction between, I guess, nationalism, sovereignty, liberalism, and how we can be masters of our own house in the 21st century, and whether it is actually possible to move beyond a, a nation state that is defined in non-ethnic terms and still be democratic, or whether, for instance, even a United States of Europe would uh, form a new kind of nation state. Another idea I've been toying with is about the role of monarchies or for constitutional monarchies in political transitions. And because the I think what get, often gets lost is, is that even though, I mean, by heart, I'm not a monarchist at all. By heart, I'm, I'm, I'm a Republican. But um, what, what, what's interesting is whether you look at the first half of the 20th century in Europe or whether you look in recent years in the Arab world, that it is generally uh, monarchies uh, who have emerged far more intact from these political transitions um, or constitutional monarchies than republican uh, revolutionary uh, change has been. So I think it would be fun to do something relating to that. Or finally, I think the something else been toying with a lot is the role of states in dealing with their national histories, in uncovering the dark past of their histories, and I think there is, particularly in the European context, very much always a belief in the role of of courts, of pen, of penal codes. And I'm not so sure whether that is really true. I mean, I already did, uh, did a conference a few years ago where kind of trying was proposing that uh, in the European context we should use more truth commissions and other forms of transitional justice. And maybe I'll do something along those lines. Thank you very much, Thomas Weber, a professor of history and international affairs at the University of Aberdeen. This was the podcast of the subcommittee of history of the Second World War of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences from uh, the CU Podcast Library. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.